Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Energy and air pollution will be one of the top five issues for the general election. We talk about Putin being in control. He's not ready. It's the various factions under him, and it suits them to have him at the front. You're trying to save for a house deposit, and you'd have to save up some crazy amount of money. How on earth are you going to do that if a pint is £7? There's certain key things that we want from India, and there's certain key things that they want from us. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. It's Friday, so we're fearing, feeling cheery. But Lizzie, you've found us some gloom to bring <laughs> us back down to earth. Oh, you make me sound so miserable. Remember the biggest tax cuts in history that Jeremy Hunt was presenting in his autumn statement and the carrot that he dangled to business in the form of making full expensing on capital investment permanent? Well, it seems... <laughs> it just trips off the tongue, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems that business is not so impressed. The Institute of Directors' latest survey shows that those measures haven't really done much to ease the pessimism among UK firms. They say that sentiment is firmly entrenched in negative territory. So Stephen, they're just not buying it. Well, I mean, it's a question really about how much that will affect short-term business decisions, I suppose, as well. Interesting to think about how business are reacting, uh, but also, speaking of a different form of government messaging, is Prime Minister Rishi Sunak going to convince delegates at the COP28 climate summit in Dubai that the UK is still committed to the climate cause. Of course, we've talked a lot on this programme about the watering down of the government's green agenda, the promise to boost oil and gas exploration. Rishi Sunak is pledging £1.6 billion uh, for climate projects now, about half of which is new money, which is always my favourite part of Bloomberg analysis of all government spending announcements. It's like, well, we actually knew about some of this already. So part of the detail in this includes half a billion pounds uh, towards tackling deforestation, £300 million for energy information, uh, energy innovation projects as well. So there is some new money in this. Um, Is it convincing all of the right people, though? That's part of the question. Look, this is a man who lost former minister Zach Goldsmith over his approach to climate issues. Goldsmith told Sky News today, there's no doubt our standing has diminished considerably in recent months. Now, obviously, you would expect Rishi Sunak rejected that. On the plane to Dubai, he said he'd walk around very proudly at the summit because the UK remains a leader on this issue. Well, Trying to avoid Keir Starmer, I assume, as well, (laughs) wandering around the same thing. Also trying to look like... Like a leader at a climate summit too, which is also part of the very interesting British political dynamic that's now playing out in Dubai. I wonder if they'll be hiding behind stands, trying to not bump into each other and be caught for an awkward photo opportunity. Or perhaps I'm getting it all wrong. Maybe they'd be greeting each other like old friends if they spot each other in the car. Yeah. <laughs> as is the fashion of the time. Uh, but that's a very interesting aspect of the story that we're considering when thinking about the big picture at the COP28 climate summit. Well, let's see how it's all going down in Dubai. We're joined from COP by our senior executive editor for Energy and Commodities, Will Kennedy. Will, great to have you on the programme. How significant is this announcement from Rishi Sunak? Well, I think what he's trying to do is convince the world that the UK remains serious about climate. Clearly, earlier in the autumn, he walked back some of the UK's 
climate commitments. Um, he said that was the prudent thing to do. And then in the King's speech, they announced the plan to uh, start awarding licenses again in the North Sea, which is a, a controversial thing from a climate perspective. So he's been under fire and the UK has traditionally been seen at COP as a, as a climate leader. Um, and I think that position is probably under threat today. So by coming here with this 1.6 billion, which is a, a fair amount of money, I think the government's trying to show that they want to be seen as still being uh, a climate leader and that you know they've got positive contributions to make to the agenda here in Dubai. What is your sense of how the UK is being viewed then? And, and is this announcement going to go some way to perhaps repair some of the damage that may have been done by the steps you were just talking about? I think that uh, the UK is probably still seen as a, an important partner in, in many respects. Um, it's been, you know, its role in the Glasgow conference really did put it into the front rank of uh, climate diplomacy. And if we think about things like these just uh, energy transition partnerships, these uh, schemes where uh, develop, developing uh, countries uh, get finance from the developed world and they try and marshal private finance to help them transition away from fossil fuels. The, the UK has been a leader there and today Sunak's going to be talking about the JetP with Vietnam, which is quite a big deal. Um, so we're still involved there, but I, I do think that Sunak's seen as someone who isn't as interested in this as, as some of his predecessors, especially uh, Boris Johnson. You mentioned the King's speech and Sunak's climate measures there. Of course, the King's also been speaking at COP this morning and he's a lifelong campaigner on the climate. Is there any sense of a division between the King and the Prime Minister that we heard today? Well, I listened to the King speak this morning and he his passion shone through. As we all know, he's been interested in the environment uh, most of his adult life, and he cares deeply about climate change, and he did nothing to hide that. Of course, he's spoken at COPs before, and he's spoken on the environment many times, but this is the first time he's spoken at a COP as king, a role where you're expected to be less political, but he didn't seem to dial back his passion for the environment, nor his willingness to engage in policy. Now, he didn't comment on UK policy at all, but he made clear there was lots he thought could happen in the world, and he got quite detailed uh, on some of the financial uh, measures in particular he thinks the world could take. Um, you know, and it was a sort of nitty-gritty uh, stuff on, on insurance and mitigating risk that you couldn't really imagine his mother ever having uh, talked about when she was queen. And of course it puts the UK at quite high billing on the conference agenda to have the King speak so early on. Um, are there other countries announcing similar funding commitments of, as what we've heard from the UK government? Yes, I think everyone likes to tie up with COP with something to, to put forward. I've mentioned two things. First of all, the UAE really tried to make a splash today because they announced a 30 billion commitment into a new climate fund that they want to set up, which they say can uh, help unlock 250 billion in climate finance. Clearly, the UAE uh, is an increasingly important financial centre. Um, it's a uh, big pool of money, some of which comes from the sovereign wealth generated by oil, um, and they feel able to, to commit that sort of money is interesting. Um, the second area where we've seen some developments in the first two days of this COP is this issue of loss and damage. So at the last COP in Sharm el-Sheikh, it was agreed that there should be a fund set up to compensate 
some people don't like that word compensate, but that's essentially what it is to help pay for the loss and damage caused in poorer countries, uh, which of course bear little responsibility for climate change, um, wrought by extreme weather, etc. Uh, now, yesterday, that fund was officially set up. Uh, just a year after it was proposed and countries started to pledge money so we saw the uae put in 100 million dollars we saw uh, germany put in 100 million dollars but the uk put in a fairly uh, significant 40 million pounds itself so again it was showing some commitment there but although you're not taking huge sums overall i think there's an important symbol there that countries richer countries are taking responsibility and devoting money to 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 paying for the impacts of climate change. So these are the commitments for the future. We've also just had the first draft of the report looking at the progress made since the Paris Agreement in 2015. So looking back, what's it told us? It's told us that we're nowhere near where we need to be, Lizzie, that the world is very off track in meeting its uh, Paris commitments and and meeting the idea, getting to the idea that climate change could be held to 1.5%, which looks increasingly unlikely, frankly, although politicians uh, are sticking to it as an aspiration, I suspect, to drive uh, the world as close as it can get to that uh, 1.5. We had a very impassioned uh, speech from the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres this morning, uh, who's become a very strong voice on on climate change um, and basically admonished the world for failing and said that the stock take, which you mentioned, Lizzie, needs to be an opportunity for the world to really reevaluate where it is and tighten its policies. Now, I think we will make some modest progress at this COP, but I don't anticipate that uh, it will be the game changer that Guterres said he'd like it to be. I'm curious as to what, I mean, this isn't your first COP, and there is a sense that Oftentimes we hear a lot of hand-wringing from politicians at events like this about what needs to be done and their, their hopes and ambitions. But that stock take sort of indicates that even on the when we did get a big agreement, like the Paris Agreement, that we don't necessarily see the follow-through. What would a big commitment look like? What could actually make a material difference? Well, I think this is a really important point that you make because COPs are about policy. They're not about implementation. Policy is actually carried out at the national level. So countries come to COP to to try and seek consensus and set a global framework for for dealing with climate change. But there are no sanctions available for people who don't comply. There are no laws involved. It's basically countries making commitments about what they want to do. So you know, I sometimes think that people have unrealistic expectations of what COPs can achieve. And, you know, they make they make modest pro- progress on things like finance. And there are a lot of important conversations happening. But if we're going to see radical uh, movement, I think it has to come from two places. One, politics at the national level. Voters deciding that dealing with emissions is very important to them and voting accordingly. And we see that occasionally and we see the uh, opposite occasionally too. And two, it's going to come from technology. It's going to come from people deploying solar panels, people buying electric cars, because it's the economically sensible thing to do. And that's starting to happen in some places. Um, Solar power has had an extraordinary year because solar panels are so cheap and an increasingly cheap way to make electricity. People are buying electric cars, but there's a long way to go. So I think sometimes when people look for more aggressive climate action, COP is not necessarily the right place to look.
Well, Kennedy, slicing through the hot air at COP for us. Thank you very much for your analysis. That's Will Kennedy, our Senior Executive Editor for Energy and Commodities in Dubai. Well, apart from the climate, another story that's come up at COP that we've been following closely on this show this week is the diplomatic spat between the UK and Greece over the Parthenon sculptures, also known as the Elgin Marbles. Now, the Greek Prime Minister had expressed his annoyance after Downing Street cancelled a meeting at Rishi Sunak at the last minute, apparently after comments that he made last weekend over the return of the sculptures to Greece. Kyriakos Mitsotakis has been speaking exclusively to Bloomberg at COP28. Here's what he told our colleague Francine Lacqua on this subject. In the spirit of uh, um, long-standing good relations our two countries have, and which I certainly intend to preserve, I don't have much to add um, uh, to this uh, topic, nor do I want to get um, um, embroiled in, in domestic um, uh, UK politics. I think we've said any, everything we have to say uh, about this issue, and I really don't want to comment more about it. Uh, have you spoken to the Prime Minister? Is it, do you feel like it's now behind you? Well, I would certainly want to leave this um, uh, unfortunate incident uh, uh, behind me, but it always takes two to tango. Have you spoken to him? No. Okay, maybe you'll get a call, maybe after this interview. Mm. That was Francine Lacroix speaking to Greece's Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis. It doesn't sound like there's any sort of great resolution of the the dispute that we heard about earlier this week, Lizzie. No, didn't learn much there, but she had a good go. Francine tried asking him a few times, but clearly he doesn't want to talk about it anymore. But of course, both leaders are in Dubai. Perhaps there may be a moment there found for some sort of uh, improvement on the debate earlier this week. But it'll have to be leaders on the same level, because of course that's what we hear was the problem that he was offered a meeting with the Deputy Prime Minister mm. Oliver Dowden and he found that insulting. Yeah, well, we will watch with interest to see if any progress is made on that issue. issue. Rishi Sunak, though, much more keen to talk about his plans to press ahead with the controversial Rwanda de- deportation plan. Uh, he was speaking to reporters uh, on the plane to Dubai about this, saying that his patience wearing thin over the UK's inability to push through his government's plan. Yeah, look, he's under huge pressure from the right of his party, the Braverman wing, to make headwind on this. They think it's essential to close the gap in the polls, but... It seems a lot like tough talk, really, because the Rwanda plan was already just quashed in the Supreme Court more than two weeks ago. He's promised this new treaty with Rwanda and an emergency set of legislation, but he's yet to publish either. And what the right of the party wants is legislation to disapply their words, human rights laws, including the UK's obligations under the European Convention of Human Rights, potentially as well the UN Refugee Convention. So that in a sense, makes it a Brexit issue because it's an extension of the argument about the need to exercise British sovereignty more broadly. But Stephen, the reality is Sunak knows going that far is going to damage relations with the sorts of people who are wandering around COP, Mm -hmm. the trading partners of the UK, not to mention it would create a domestic headache given that the ECHR underpins the Good Friday Agreement, the Northern Ireland Peace Agreement. So ultimately... Behind the scenes, he and the Home Secretary, James Cleverly, are trying to thread the needle still. And this does just seem like tough talk to cover it up. And there's a practical element to this too. It's legally very complicated to try and achieve what he's trying to achieve, uh, to be able to get around all of the UK's international legal obligations, to try and create essentially a web of laws that will allow them to just skirt around the problem created by the Supreme Court ruling. And there's always the chance, of course, this goes back to the Supreme Court again and they say, no, 
still not right. You still haven't managed to reach the bar that we have set for, for meaning that we will deem this plan to be illegal, that people won't be at risk of being sent back to countries without risk if they go via Rwanda. If that plane takes off before the next election, I'll give you a tenner. Oh, no, well noted. Okay, thanks very much, um, Lizzie. So that's uh, one of the other political stories that we're following for you today. We've also been reflecting on the life of former UK Chancellor Alistair Darling, who died at the age of 70 yesterday. That's the role that he'll be remembered for during the financial crisis. But he was one of only three cabinet ministers to serve through the entirety of Labour's last 13-year stint in government. As the tributes that have flooded in overnight show, he was respected by colleagues from both main parties, a rarity in politics in Tony Blair's words. And earlier we spoke to Alistair Campbell, who worked closely alongside Mr Darling as Tony Blair's former director of communications. And we asked him for his memories of the former chancellor. As an absolute team player and a 100% solid citizen, um, it's really, I mean, last night I was sort of flicking through one of the nice things about keeping a diary is you can, when you're looking for memories, you can you can flick through them. The thing about most of the people I've worked with, including Tony Blair, including lots of people for whom I have enormous affection and respect, I certainly find things where there's been a crossword or where maybe I've, you know, been a bit angry with them from time to time, but Alistair was just an absolute team player. I, I can I can't think of a single thing that I could ever criticise him for. Um, he was just a wonderful, wonderful, warm human being, and I think as a as a politician, he was somebody who really never stopped believing in the basic values that had taken him into politics. He found a lot of modern politics, I think, quite difficult to deal with. He didn't particularly enjoy the attention. He didn't particularly enjoy a lot of the stuff you have to do in modern politics. But he just did every single job that he did. He did it well. He did it without fuss. He did it without constantly asking how people thought he was doing. He did it. I can't ever remember him coming and trying to sort of lobby for his own preferment or promotion. And as you said in the introduction, just one of three people who was a cabinet minister from start to end of a very, very long period of government. Alistair, many of our listeners will remember Alistair Darling because of his role during the financial crisis, overseeing some of the huge changes that happened in the sector in 2008. How much of his personality was central to the response that we saw uh, and, of course, the, the government action taken at that time? Well, I think, it, I think it was, and I think in a way his entire career had, had been a pretty useful preparation for that. You know, he, he, he was, if he, his first job in cabinet was the chief secretary of the treasury, uh, which is a pretty good place from which to learn an awful lot about the economy and about the political economy as well. Uh, and then through a succession of, you know, extremely important jobs, secretary of Scotland, transport, business. Um, and I, I think that as Chancellor, he had a combination of his own character and his own calm, but also he hadn't—he was respected uh, by the system, he was respected by his peers, uh, both home and abroad. And, you know, I've just been listening to Gordon Brown on the radio, there's no doubt between them at the time there were, there were really sort of difficult tensions that were going on because they were dealing with massive, massive issues. But I think that sense of, of Alistair's calm, his ability to be at the centre of a storm without actually actually getting overwhelmed by it. Now, that doesn't mean that he didn't have moments of real doubt and panic and a sense of, you know, the enormity of what he was dealing with. 
but he always had this this ability to kind of center himself. And almost I felt sometimes when he was talking about these decisions he was making, it was almost like he was looking in at it from the outside. So he wasn't being driven necessarily by by emotion. He was very, very practical about the, the decisions that he was making. And I think that his ability then to go out and explain them in a calm way as well, I think just was massively reassuring for people, for market. Um, so I think people can look back at that period and, and actually see somebody who made a significant difference to stopping a crisis becoming an absolute catastrophe. And his steadiness really quite a contrast to Gordon Brown's perhaps mercurial character as you might put it but um, what should Labour learn from his legacy now? I don't think it's just Labour but I think politics as a whole needs to learn that we've got to get serious about our politics and our politicians again. Um, I thought that you know it was it was telling that yesterday as people were digesting the horrible news that he's died we were yet having yet another day at the Covid inquiry into you know just sort of like a terrific soap opera and I just think if you have people like Alistair Darling in politics serious people taking their responsibilities seriously and I think the other thing I'd say about him is that modern politics it has become more difficult in many ways. But ultimately, if you don't have integrity, if you don't have basic values and principles that you as an individual can hold to, then you're going to struggle. And I think that what Alistair showed right throughout his life and right throughout his career was that he was driven by a genuine sense of public service. It was never about him. It was always about the job that he was doing for the people that he represented and in government for the prime ministers who had appointed him to a succession of very, very important jobs. So I think it's not a new lesson this, but I think it's one that we should really kind of un- understand the importance of it. Politics at its best is about genuine commitment to public service through values and principles, and that was Alistair Darling to a T. So that was Alistair Campbell speaking to us a little earlier. Now, we also discussed Alistair Darling's legacy with Bloomberg's senior UK economist, Dan Hansen. He worked at the Treasury at the time when Alistair Darling was Chancellor. Here's what he remembers of working with him. What struck me was the calmness, and everyone says that, and the ability to make what were impossibly difficult decisions and you know when you look back on it now probably get them pretty much right you know recapitalization of the banks an enormous what seemed like at the time enormous fiscal stimulus in the 2008 pre-budget report i mean i think that was my first fiscal event and when you compared that to the march budget which is the classic example of the treasury having put out a forecast that you know that's got the biggest forecast error on it ever i think um apart from obviously during the pandemic but it, it, it was slightly different you know the the writing of felt like it was on the wall in march 2008 we'd had the northern rock issue and things were really turning down so um i think it was the calmness with which he he sort of managed the situation which was obviously incredibly um tense and darling was your first chancellor how did he compare to his successors so i yeah alistair darling was the first and then george osborne i was i was at the treasury till 2015 uh and very warm tribute from george osborne absolutely and i i i really enjoyed reading that to be honest with you because i think when you look at them the two of them um I mean, first of all, they both sort of joined forces, didn't they, during Brexit? Um, and they had the, I think it's the Stronger Together campaign. I think I'm right in saying that. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, I, I was looking back, and if you look at the plans that um, George Osborne inherited from Alistair Darling, I think 
what was something that was sort of less appreciated about Alistair Darling was it wasn't just his ability to recognise the crisis, but also his ability and what he did to recognise what needed to be done to sort of fix particularly the public finances subsequently. And George Osborne always gets a, a tough a tough going over for being the austerity chancellor. But if you look, about 65% of what George Osborne presided over in terms of spending cut, tax rises, were already baked in to what to the plans he inherited. So he topped it up. Yeah, he did more. And there was a question mark at the time about speed and a little bit about the composition of it. But actually, you know, that in terms of making the tough decisions on what was needed in the fallout from the financial crisis and the sort of big macro picture... They were more aligned than they were different in many ways. Um, and I think that's sort of, that was sort of what I would take away from the two of them. What could Rachel Reeves, who could be in line to be the next Chancellor if Labour wins the next election, what could Rachel Reeves learn from him? I think, I think one, thing, one thing that isn't appreciated is that when you're outside of government and you're in opposition, you have a very small team around you relative to what you get suddenly get access to when you come into government. I'm not saying Rachel Reeves is going to be the next Chancellor, but let's just imagine that she will be the next Chancellor. Um, and I think what you um, do when you walk into the Treasury is you get, gain access to a huge number of resources and some of the brightest minds in the country. And you, we're talking about Alistair Darling but and all, the, all that he did during the financial crisis to sort of steer the economy through it, but you have to remember, sat in the Treasury, you had Lord Nick McPherson, Tom Scholar, Dave Ramsden, Claire Lombardelli. I was just on a panel with John Kingman. John Kingman. Um, all of those names that are still in the sort of public economic markets domain now. And he had all that advice. And he had Andrew Bailey at the Bank of England as well, who was presiding over the sort of resolution of the bank. So you had all this brain power there. Um, and my advice to Rachel Reeves would be to listen to it and and use it and take advantage of it because that they all the team there now still has an awful lot of experience and an awful lot to bring. That's our senior UK economist. Dan Hansen. Really interesting to hear his reflections uh, on what he was like as a Chancellor and of course those memories that we heard from Alistair Campbell as well. And really interesting in the context of today's politics to hear Dan say austerity effectively started under Darling. Osborne just sped it up. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Well, that's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe. Give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by Tiwa Adebayo and our audio engineer was Mariful Hussain. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more on Monday. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.